On this episode of Lifespan, our guest, Doug, describes his decades-long addiction to alcohol, the effect of his addiction on his life and his family, and his ongoing recovery. His wife, Debbie, who Doug describes as the hero in this story, talks about living with and loving an alcoholic, the meaning and effect of codependency, and how her role as a mother to their children eventually prompted her to confront Doug's drinking squarely and unflinchingly. Doug's story is especially interesting because now he works as a substance abuse counselor, so his insights are professional as well as personal. He begins his story with his college years. I attended my first year of college in the fall of 1969. I attended a small little university in the middle of Wisconsin. I was quite uncomfortable going there. I was I went there alone. Um, I absolutely knew no one. And uh, I was very lonely and wondering, what the hell am I doing here? Until we had this thing called a wing party. And in the dorms, you have various wings per floor. And they were, at that time, they were um, male and female dormitories. So the, the guys would invite a female wing of, of a dormitory, and we'd go out to a local bar and have a party. I still felt awkward and, and, you know, attended this actually uh, uh, reluctantly. But all of a sudden, I discovered this magic in a bottle. And I had my first beer and, well, relaxed a little bit. I got a little, little happy, a little euphoric. And if one is good, two has to be twice as good. And I had another one. And as a matter of fact, it was twice as good. So if two is twice as good, then let's hell yes, we'll go for three. This was the first time Doug ever had a drink. Now all of a sudden, I became somebody that I wanted to be. I was outgoing and gregarious and funny and a risk taker and... um all of this occurred on one magical night in the middle of Wisconsin. School all of a sudden became more and more fun. I was more involved, uh, more involved on the social side, not, not on the uh, academic side. I wasn't using alcohol every day, but I was using it as a solution. I started using alcohol as a solution. Uh, go in the telephone booth and change into Superman and come out, you know, Mr. Joy Boy and entertaining everyone, including myself. I kept drinking regularly, but it never, oh, never really impacted my life as far as I could tell, as far as I was concerned. I'll fast forward to when things, when things started deteriorating. And when I say things started deteriorating, I mean, my use of alcohol became important. It became something that was necessary and required not only physically, but certainly emotionally and psychologically. It started to become my best friend. And that occurred about five or six years after Doug graduated from college. So now it's the late 1970s. 
there was a, a ten-year gap from the initial discovery to where it now was was affecting me on a all on a daily basis. By then, Doug had been married for five years. He and his wife Debbie were living in Minneapolis, and he was working at a large bank in St. Paul. Debbie describes what first attracted her to Doug. We met in high school, um, but we didn't start dating until after we graduated high school, once we started college. Um, And one of the things that attracted me to Doug was that uh, he was like my father, that um, he was kind of a rascal and he loved to have fun and he liked to drink and he liked to party and he was the life of the party. And um, that uh, attracted me to him actually. Debbie also uh, was working at that time, so we were enjoying a, a level of economic security and, and, and a wonderful social life uh, at that time uh, in the cities. And all along uh, in those years, my uh, life gradually became more and more defined by my use of alcohol. Uh, friends that I associated with, uh, the activities, um, the the requirement for it, um, uh, and uh, uh, my relationship grew. Were you an isolated drinker? Were you? Did you drink alone? Did you have drinking buddies? I didn't stay exclusively with people that always used, or uh, didn't seek out people that always used, but I sure preferred them. <laughs> it was, it was, it was my, my preference to, to hang out with people that also used alcohol. Doug's use of alcohol increased. He went from the weekends drinking with friends to also drinking during the work week. Uh, I was becoming more and more isolated. I was uh, drinking alone. In the early 1980s, Debbie and Doug decided they were ready to have children. Once I was trying to get pregnant, I quit drinking totally and um, uh, didn't even have coffee during my pregnancy. But after we had a baby, Doug just kept on drinking. And, fa- and in fact, he, he um, got worse even after the baby was born. Doug was sober at his son Ryan's birth but as soon as Ryan was settled in Debbie's arms, Doug began to focus on getting home. I was constantly thinking about my alcohol supply back home and couldn't wait to get there. This was at the birth of my first child. Alcohol was, was coming up a little bit higher in the hit parade. In fact, my sober life was becoming an inconvenience. Now alcohol was controlling my life. There's no question about it. And I was a willing subject. Uh, I enjoyed the partnership. So you didn't define it as a problem at all? Oh, God, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Again, it was still a solution. It was an answer. Uh, It uh, it, um, uh, created a life that was tolerable. Not only tolerable, but I entertained myself <laughs> somehow, uh, and and I was, I was 
And as it was turning out, and I was never smart enough to figure this one out, as it turned out, people were leaving me. I wasn't leaving them. Although, quite frankly, the the more that left, the, the ones that left were the ones that weren't users. So it was, oh, well, good riddance, no problem. And if an activity that came up and there wasn't going to be alcohol, I was not interested in it. Weddings were great. Weddings were wonderful because typically you had an open bar at a wedding and no oh, man, oh man, oh man, oh man. Those were just those were just good things to participate in. Things like going to a movie uh, and going out to dinner and uh, other activities that didn't include alcohol. No, no, not so much. Uh, I did not care for them. And yet when you're a new father, you know, new mothers need a lot of help. So were you were you kind of were you disappearing more and more? Were you less and less available to your family? No, no, not at all. Not with not with Ryan. Um, I was I was involved uh, with him so long as I knew um, how far away my supply was and that, how much I had. Uh, that's a that's a hallmark of a of a person that has a problem with uh, with chemical uses. You always know exactly how much you have. You always know exactly how much you need. And you always know exactly where you'll be able to get more. That is, um, uh, you have to have those three conditions because without, you know, without without alcohol, oh my God, uh, life is just not is just not complete. It's not comfortable. It's 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 a it's a foreign condition to not to not be under the influence. But I was still. I was still engaged with my son and with Debbie, and uh, we were, I was changing diapers and, and doing all that good kind of stuff, um, uh, more or less, more or less sober, uh, at least Debbie was allowing me to do so, so I must have been yeah, <laughs> sort of, sort of competent and not, not, uh, not always under the influence. Debbie agrees that Doug was a big help with the baby. She wasn't feeling isolated, but she was starting to worry. Doug came home every night with a six-pack of beer, and before dinner, he had consumed the entire six-pack. In fact, then it started to be where when he would come home, he would only have five of the six cans of beer. And I would say, what, what did you do? Drink the one can in the car, or, or he was taking the bus on the bus? Um, it was like he couldn't even wait to get home to have that first can of beer. So I started complaining and raising concerns. And he uh, basically put the blame on me, of course. Um, he said, well, now that you've stopped drinking, you're just a prude. And you don't understand that when um, when people come home from work, everybody has a couple of drinks after they come home from work to relax. And, you know, you just need to loosen up. And so then I would back off and say, okay, all right, maybe he's right. Um, maybe everybody has, maybe everybody drinks this way. And, um, you know, I'm the one who's wrong. I asked Doug if his parents drank. No, no, never, never. I, I was raised in a very evangelical religious environment a very strict code of 
of behavior and do's and don'ts. Um, uh, and one of the don'ts was alcohol. During the church service, during communion, the, as I found out later in other churches, they and it, they used real wine. In our church, no grape juice. Uh, alcohol was a sin, was a bad thing. But growing up, it was kind of idyllic. I uh, lived in the neighborhood of 12 kids, and there were, we were within three years of age of each other, and it was it was a wonderful, wonderful life, a small child. But but again, the our moral code was was inviolate. Um, you, you step out of you step out of the borders, and you're you're uh, you're asking for trouble. But I I certainly embraced I embraced the uh, the rebellion. One of the ways I did it, as it turns out, as, as I look back, was one of the ways I did it was use alcohol. Ryan is now about three years, four years old, and I'm I'm still kind of being a dad, but kind of not. Uh, um, I'm interested more in going to work and. Uh, every three o'clock in the afternoon, three of us would uh, go down the bar and have our three o'clock starter, and um, uh, it would go from there. Um, this was also a time when I was uh, waking up with a regular hangover and telling myself, "Man, I am not going to have any alcohol tonight." But sure enough, that afternoon, I stopped at my liquor store uh, on a first name basis with the clerk there. I had my six uh, pack of 16 ounce beer ready for me, and every time, every morning, I said no, and every afternoon, I said yes, and uh, that's how uh, <laughs> that's how my work week progressed. Then, in 1986, Doug and Debbie had another son, Ben. This time, though, things were a little different. This is when I was committed to alcohol. Uh, it dictated my days and nights and my activities and thoughts and desires. And also, I started getting criticism from family and friends and people starting to recognize that uh, that my life had been taken over by alcohol and they were, were telling me, but it didn't make any difference. Debbie's father drank heavily throughout her childhood, and looking back on it, Doug thinks she put up with his drinking far longer than she should have because she was accustomed to men drinking. And I think that worked in my favor for a long time. It was great to uh, be able to live this life and and have a person um, reluctantly, reluctantly put up with it or agree with it. Debbie agrees that because her own father drank heavily, she wasn't really sure what was normal when it came to drinking. That made it easy for Doug to convince her he had no problem and that she was the one with the problem. My father was an alcoholic. He was never assessed, of course. He was never diagnosed as alcoholic because um, you just didn't do that in those days. Men didn't. But he drank heavily. Whenever he started drinking, he drank to excess. So, yeah, I thought that was, it, I didn't know if it was normal behavior, but I was used to it. Um, I was, it's just what we did, cleaned up after him and 
uh, made excuses for him and all of that. So yes, that I think that figured heavily in my experience with Doug, that that was what was normal until it became obvious that it wasn't really normal. But when Debbie was pregnant with her second son, Ben, she wasn't as easily silenced. She saw an ad for a talk at a local hospital about how to recognize alcoholism in a loved one. I went to the talk and they had, they discussed all the symptoms, signs of alcoholism and Doug had quite a few of them. She asked Doug to cut down on his drinking. The demands started with, can't you cut down? Can't you stop doing this so often and drinking so much? Um, it would really be a good thing if you would if you would slow down a little bit. And of course, I I uh, blew it off and and uh, never never considered it. She was becoming more and more. Uh, insistent and descriptions of what my behavior should be were becoming more and more frequent. Uh, how it's affecting the children, how it's affecting her life, and and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and but I kept I kept uh, swimming along, uh, uh, oblivious to oblivious to what was going on around me, or intentionally in oblivious to what was going on around me. What Doug didn't realize was how profoundly Debbie had been affected by the talk at the hospital. It was shocking. I mean, I, I, I really didn't want him to be an alcoholic, but I, I couldn't deny it anymore. What they had recommended in the talk was if you're concerned about your spouse, your loved one, you should go to Adelman. So I went to my first Adelman meeting. I was very nervous, but I went. And the, the thing about Al-Anon is um, newcomers, when they first go to Al-Anon, they think everyone was crazy. I, I wondered, how is this group supposed to help me? Because you go in and say they say, well, why are you here or whatever? And you say, I want to know how to make my husband stop drinking. And they say, this is not about your loved one. This is about you. And you say, well, I don't have a problem. It's my husband who has the problem. I'm fine. But they just gently say, no, this is, uh, you'll learn this is about you and, and your relationship with alcohol and your relationship to your spouse. And what keeps you going back, what kept me going back was the people in the room. They all talk about their experience. You go one by one around the room and, and talk about whatever you want to talk about. And they start describing their experience. And you think, oh my goodness, this person has been in my house. She's been a fly on the wall listening to everything we say because her experience matches mine so closely. You know, she's also been hiding the, the liquor bottles or um, you know, pouring the liquor down the sink or, or calling in work and saying that um, her husband has the flu when really he has a hangover. All these things are so similar to your experience that it's a relief, in, really, because you've been hiding 
for so long. And it's a relief to know that other people have been going through this, that you're not the only crazy family on the block. When I first got to Al-Anon, they have a book of literature. And, you know, you read like one one page for each time you go or whatever. But anyway, I remember this woman was saying, yes, my husband was telling me it was all my fault. And I wasn't a good enough wife, whatever. So she said, so I, I tried to be a good wife and I tried to be a good cook. I, you know, I just practiced and practiced, made all these wonderful dishes. And she said, and then I came to Anon and I learned about alcoholism and I learned about the disease. And she said, here we are. We're talking about alcoholism, and I was trying to cure it with a pork chop. But I learned right at the beginning, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. And the first one was a revelation to me. I didn't cause it. Um, you know, Doug was... It was blaming me so much. I was thinking, well, I'm a bad wife, or you know, I, I should, I should do this better, or that better. I should be, be a cook, or you know, if I only did something differently, I could make this stop. But when I heard I didn't cause it, and I can't control it, and I can't cure it, it was just a revelation to me. And then you learn that alcohol is a disease. She also learned about codependency. They said in Al-Anon that the alcoholic is addicted to alcohol and the codependent is addicted to the alcoholic. And so it becomes almost a family disease and a codependent um, facilitates almost without knowing, certainly without knowing or without wanting to but facilitates the behavior and that um, you cover up for the alcoholic, you make excuses, uh, you keep it quiet, you don't tell anybody about what's going on in your family, or um, you don't want anyone to know that there's something wrong with your husband or your family. But family life had changed so much after Ben was born that she couldn't ignore Doug's drinking or her own codependency any longer. I really think that I was the one who raised the boys during that time especially during the weekends, he would start drinking at say 11 o'clock in the morning and um, he would be passed out by four o'clock. So any, we didn't have a, a family life where we would go out and do something, you know, on a Saturday afternoon or whatever. If we did anything like that, it would just be the three of us, uh, myself and, and the two boys. Yeah, he was, he was pretty much absent. Debbie's line in the sand, as she put it, became, when this starts affecting my children, I have to act. And the effect on her boys became evident one night in 1989 on Memorial Day. Doug used to take Ryan with him on Saturday mornings to the liquor store for some reason. They would always give him a sucker, a lollipop. When they, when they left. That night when I was putting Ryan to bed, he looked at me and he said, you know, 
I wish I could take my baseball bat into the sucker store and just smash all the beer cans so that my daddy wouldn't drink anymore. That broke my heart. And I just looked at him and I thought, okay, here we go. This is it. The line has been crossed and, uh, and we're done. It took three years in Al-Anon for Debbie to get to the place where she could confront Doug squarely and deliberately about his drinking. It was the summer of 1989. My father showed up uh, at my workplace and said, hey, um, I've come here and I want to I want to take you someplace. I need to. I need to show you something. I need to talk with you about something. So I knew something was up, but I was, you know, I walked into it. And as it turned out, I was delivered to a uh, intervention. And the intervention consisted of uh, Debbie, my mother and father, and other important people in our lives. And they went around and offered. Uh, testimonials of my behavior and what I was like when I was drinking and it was a rather um, well done production but I was sitting there all the time going man oh man oh man if these people think I'm going to stop drinking they are out of their minds all the time all the time saying that slapping it away saying they don't have a problem or excuse me I don't have a problem they have a problem um they're making this stuff up. It's not that bad. Uh, I'm okay. I still have work. Uh, I'm bringing home. I'm bringing home money. Um, uh, I'm, I'm doing the things that a, that a father uh, and a man should be doing. So you know, I they're really <laughs> they are really way off base. Was there a professional there? Yeah, it was. So Debbie really worked at this. I mean, this this is something that she pulled together with a lot of people's help and clearly had been, you have to plan to do an intervention. So a lot of work went into this. Oh, an extraordinary amount of work. Extraordinary work on her part, which, <laughs> I mean... It's just the, this is the lady I this is the lady I love and the lady I married and she is she is just impressive and this is another example of that. Um, uh, she contacted all these all these friends, people, interested parties. Um, it certainly couldn't have been a comfortable conversation, uh, especially with my with my mom and dad. My mom in particular. This is her boy. So, so what was the aftermath then of the intervention? I went back to work. <laughs> and my manager looked at me cross-eyed and wondered, what the hell was I doing? Because he was aware of the intervention that was going on as I came to find out. So, so I went back to work like everything's normal and, you know, kept on going. Debbie was serious. She packed a bag for Doug, put it in their car, 
and told him during the intervention that she'd made arrangements for him to go directly from the intervention to a rehab center. And she told him that if he didn't go into treatment, she was leaving and taking their boys with her. So we got through and um, the, the facilitator said, well, what, what are you going to do, Doug? And he said, I'm not going. I'm not going to treatment. There's no way I'm going. I'm going back to work. So that's what he did. We all assumed he would be going to treatment, but he said no. We were all shocked and sad. Um, I remember my friends crying. Um, Doug's mom was crying. Later that day, Doug talked on the phone to Debbie's sister, Marilyn, who had also been at the intervention. Because Doug refused to be in treatment, Debbie was planning to leave with the boys and go with Marilyn to live in Florida. And I told her that I was unable to speak to you about anything other than to tell you that you cannot take my children out of the state of Minnesota. <laughs> and I kept saying that over and over and over again. And it was a pure bluff. Pure bluff. According to Doug, Marilyn and Debbie believed Doug's bluff, and Debbie and the boys came back home. But Debbie tells that part of the story differently. After Doug's bluff on the phone with Marilyn, Debbie talked to an attorney who assured her that she could take her sons anywhere she wanted to as long as Doug knew where they were. But then Doug called again. And said, listen, I want to talk, just you and me. No one else, just the two of us. I want to talk. I think we just went to a park and sat in the car and talked. And he said, I, I'm afraid of treatment. I'm afraid of going to treatment. And I don't want to lose my job. I don't want people at work to know that I'm in treatment. I don't want to take, you know, how many weeks off to go. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. So he said, I will get sober um, by going to AA. He said, I promise I'll go to AA meetings and um, I, I promise I'm going to get sober and that's how I'm going to do it. <sighs> so I said, okay, all right, we'll try it. But I said, one month, I'm giving you one month. And if you don't, if you don't go to meetings, if you keep drinking, whatever, then for sure we're leaving. So I said, okay, so my sister went back to Florida by herself. We went back home and we started the one month trial. Debbie comes back. It was awkward and weird and and everything, but a uh, big old smile on my face. I, I won again, and my buddy and me can keep on going. It was a happy moment for me. Um, and we, for then, for the next couple of weeks, we just kind of existed with each other, um, Debbie and I, and and which was which was fine with me because now because. Truth of the matter is, my primary relationship at this point was alcohol. 
that was that was my primary relationship. Um, and I use the word relationship carefully and uh, to describe exactly what was going on. Um, civilians don't necessarily get this, but people that have problems with chemicals, and I certainly did, they have, we have a relationship with our chemical. I had a relationship with alcohol, um, and that's that boggles a lot of people's minds, but that's the truth. Debbie says that during the one-month trial, Doug was going to weekly AA meetings, but still drinking. In Doug's description of that month, he doesn't mention any AA meetings, just the opposite. He says he behaved as he had for years. He had checked out local AA meetings earlier at Debbie's insistence, but always came up with some excuse. The group had too many members. The group had too few members. He always had some excuse for not going. Debbie admits now that it's likely he just said he was going to a meeting and went somewhere else instead. Maybe he just went to a park and drank. I don't know. But he would say he was going to meetings. I had no way of checking. I wasn't going to follow him. But I knew he was drinking the whole time. He was drinking every every day. All, but he, he switched from beer to um, vodka. So he would put vodka in orange juice. And he was drinking a lot of orange juice. Um, thinking that I wouldn't realize that he was actually drinking. And there was one time he was really drunk. And I said to him, Doug, I know you're drinking. You're drunk right now. Oh, no, I'm not. Nope, nope, no, I haven't been drinking. Uh-uh. So, okay. But I said I would give him a, a month. So I gave him a month. And Doug admits that he was hiding vodka in the garage. The, all, of the, all of the hiding places in the house had long been discovered and found. And so that, so hiding in the house was no longer an option, which was especially inconvenient because it was soon going to be winter and I'd be dragging my side butt out to the garage to hit my supply and then they come back in again. I mean, how rude can that be? She's making me do this. She's causing, she's making me change and do these stupid things. I mean, really, I'm I'm starting to get mad now. Anger is one of the best, one of the best defenses for a person that's using. Anger is a wonderful thing. It's just sweet. It pushes people away. They, they no longer want to be around you. It's just, it's just mm, mm, mm. so good in so many different ways. So I continued. I continued drinking for a while. At the end of the month, I mean, the next day, he went to work. The boys went to school and daycare. I walked out to the garage, and I think it took me 30 seconds to find the bottle. And it was a bottle of vodka, half full, and it was actually in a paper bag. I, I couldn't believe it. What happened next was... Debbie came to to work, and she was <laughs> she was on fire. I said, "This this is the real intervention." I said, "It's your choice," and I've realized that from going to Al-Anon. It's your choice whether you want to keep drinking or not, and I understand that and I respect that. And I said, "If you decide to keep drinking." Um, I will not talk bad about you to the boys. Um, 
I will not talk bad about you to our friends and our family. I will just say that it was your choice to make and, and you made it. And I said, you think that um, you can't live without me and the boys. But I said, that's not true. You can. You can start all over again. I said, you could go to any bar in this city and pick up a, a lonely young woman and you can get married and, and you can drink together and have fun together and you can get married and you can have more children. You can do that. But I said, here's the thing. I have made the choice that I do not want any relationship with alcohol at all. I'm done with it. I'm severing my relationship with alcohol. I grew up in an alcoholic family and I don't want my children to grow up in an alcoholic family. I know what that's like. They are not going to have a relationship with alcohol either. And then she said, Doug, you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to choose between alcohol and me and your two boys. I couldn't choose. I couldn't choose. I couldn't choose. It was an impossible. It was an impossible choice. One was as important as the other. And here is where their stories diverge, as family stories usually do. Debbie says she gave Doug 24 hours to decide, and he was in rehab within two days. Doug says he went into rehab a few months later. He even claims to recall the exact date. September 18th, 1989, I was in my basement, and I had just finished a quart of vodka. <laughs> Notice I had finished it. And I looked at the empty bottle, and inside my head, a voice came. I don't know whose voice it was. I couldn't imagine it. I couldn't, you can't, I couldn't imagine it being my voice saying this. But nonetheless, it said, Doug, you've got a problem. That was an awful time. And that, that was the first time you were admitting you had a problem. I don't think it was an admission that I had a problem because I hadn't said yet, yet, I have a problem. But this voice was so compelling, I had to pay attention to it. It didn't go through any of the normal filters. It didn't go through rationalization. The, the words didn't go through denial. The words didn't go through anger. Oftentimes, at AA or in treatment facilities or discussions people have users with users, you often hear about this, this thing called a moment of clarity. And that moment of clarity is, is typically the, the user is alone. I was completely alone in my basement. Nobody was around. And you hear these moments of clarity often called it's very quiet, whether it's noisy or not, whether there's ambient noise going on in the background, but it's always quiet. 
I was in my basement and there was no sound, no sound whatsoever. And people oftentimes describe this, this moment of clarity that there is a pureness of the thought or incontrovertible truth. And that's what happened. I heard the truth. I got very sad. Saddest day of my life. Sad because I understood that I had to say goodbye to my best friend. That to know that I had a problem, which at that moment I did. I knew I had a problem. I knew at that moment that I had to say goodbye or it had to die or whatever. It was going to be gone. And um, I walked upstairs and I found Debbie and I said, Debbie, I'm going to go to treatment. I've got a problem. Despite their disagreement about the timing of when Doug went into rehab, they're in complete agreement that he embraced every step of the process. So then he started treatment. And I think it was six weeks. Like I said, from five to 10 every weeknight. And there were some, they also had a program for the, the um, spouses, the loved ones of, of the um, alcoholics and chemical dependents. And it, uh, it was really incredible. And he, he, it took the first time with him. I, you know, I've heard many people say that, oh, he's been in treatment two or three times. And, uh, but no, nope, first time it took. One of the things that I so enjoyed about using alcohol was it gave me this sense of freedom, a sense of, of release, of being my own man, of, of being on my own. Went through treatment, and I had this profound sense of freedom. And looking back, I, I knew, I knew that my use was a ball and a chain. It wasn't freedom. No, it wasn't. It was, in fact, it was, in fact, 180 degrees from freedom. It was a prison. I realized that I'd been, I'd been living a lie and believing every wonderful moment of that lie for how many years? I don't know. Eight, 10, 12 years. So that was that. Debbie, though, needed time. It took me a long, long time to trust him again because when you live with an alcoholic, you live with lies, constant lies. He would say on Saturday morning, Ryan and I are going to go to the hardware store. And you knew he's going to the liquor store. You know, it's just lie after lie after lie. And so it took me oh, at least a couple of years to be able to trust him. Um, even with 
with little things like um, in the afternoon, oh, I'm going to the hardware store. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> sure. Yeah, you're going to the hardware No, really, honey, I'm going to the hardware store. Um, and there were... And there were also like triggers. Um, one time he, he used to drink Budweiser, which comes in a red can. And one time I got in, a, in the car and I was backing out of the driveway and a red can went rolling down um, below my feet. I saw, I just saw this red can and I about had a heart attack. I just, my, my breathing got shallow. My heart started racing. Um, I think it broke into a sweat until I looked down and found the can and it was a can of Coke. So, yeah, it took me a long time to get over all of it, even though I knew that he changed so much in treatment and he he loved treatment so much. He said it was the best, the, the, the most meaningful six weeks of his life. Even all of that, I still was afraid. I was still afraid. And it took me a couple years to get over that. And Debbie also had come to terms with the cost to herself of being a codependent. You don't have a life of your own, really, um, because you're constantly thinking, how, how do we get out of this? How do I make him stop? Um, yeah, that's and that's what they tell you um, in treatment, too, is um, you're going to have a lot of time on your hands once um, your loved one gets out of treatment because you're going to have to think about what you want in your life, what you want to do, because you spent all of your time and all of your thoughts on this problem. Um, so you better think about what you want out of life. So that's the disease of codependency. For Doug, though, the rehab process immediately pointed his life in an unambiguously positive direction. I had a really, really productive period in my life and reacquainted, reunited, and discovered I really, really liked my family. I mean, seriously, like my family. And that was, when, that was one of the... One of the Oh, fun things. All of a sudden, uh, the four of us are at the kitchen table and we're eating, eating dinner. And I'm uh, talking with them and, and, and started planning things to do. And everybody, all three of them looked at me like, who is this guy? Who is, who is this person at the table? I never plan things to do with the family. My planning was how much was I going to drink and how often was I going to do it? I was completely disengaged from my family and they wondered who I was. <laughs> Moments like that in your life, when you, when you realized what alcohol had done to you, to your relationships, did you feel like you had to look at the people you loved most in the world sitting at the kitchen table with you and, and apologize? Well, there was a person that took took the brutality and took the lying and took the the alienation, if you will. And that was my wife. That was Debbie. She was the one that took all of that. And to this day, uh, to this day, I I feel um, a profound sense of of guilt, and I understand the hurt. 
that I inflicted on her. I haven't completely resolved that. I think Debbie looks at you as a hero. No one understands better the difficulty of fighting an addiction than someone who is partnered with someone who is who has been an addict. There is a hero in this story. There is. And it's Debbie. I'm not the hero. I got my life back. I still have a family. I was given gifts. And heroic? I shoot, Jackie, I don't think so. Nothing was going to happen unless I continued to choose to not use alcohol. That day, today, right now, the most important thing is that I choose not to use alcohol today. Because I do. If I do, everything's gone. It's, it disappears. Yesterday, when I was in group as a counselor, as a facilitator, one of the clients asked me if I still have thoughts about using about using alcohol. And this gets to be a little dicey. It's not necessarily a good thing for a counselor, for me, to disclose my experience because it's not about me, it's about them. But anyways, I said, yeah, absolutely. No question about it. Day before yesterday, day before yesterday, sure enough, sure enough, I was going to work. I thought, man, you know, I'm a little tense right now. A little, just one shot ought to do it, and it'll be okay. It was a rapid thought, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I'm right back there, right back there in a moment. Yeah, my buddy is still out there. Just waiting and hoping, waiting and hoping that I'll come back. There's a void. There's an emptiness, if you will. Alcohol helps fill. So now I'm dealing with that 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 void that kind of keeps 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 evading me. I'm a cocky gun, ready to go off at any moment, and I understand that. I understand it entirely, and and it truly it's it's my pleasure. It is absolutely my pleasure and my honor saying no to choose no. Because of because of what it means, um, <laughs> and it's gotten to the point now where sometimes I have those thoughts of using, and I go, "Really? How ridiculous can this possibly be?" But I do know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that I must be alert and aware where my good friend is right now. And uh, yeah, occasionally I do still do miss him. Occasionally I do. Can't believe it, but yeah, it's true. It's true. But, okay. Treatment was as meaningful for Debbie as it was for Doug. After we went through treatment, I was telling everyone I think every couple should go through treatment together because it's so wonderful. And, and that's another thing that I want to emphasize is that um, 
People might be afraid, so afraid of going to treatment, but it's not a scary place at all. It's a very safe place and welcoming place. And, um, and it's truthful and it's real, of course. It's more it's the most real discussions you're ever going to have. But um, they say that when a person starts drinking, that's, that's where their emotional growth stops. So if you started drinking at age 18, you are still a, at age 18, even if you're 44 years old, if you've been drinking that whole time. While other people who are nervous about going to a party, but they don't drink before, they just go to the party cold sober, they learn how to talk to people, how to meet strangers, how to look people, a stranger in the eye and shake his hand. They learn how to um, interact socially. But I said, but if you have a six pack of beer before you go to the party, you're not learning any of those skills. So um, that's what treatment does. It, it understands is that this person has not been maturing, is not mature and um, it teaches them how about anger management, a lot about communication, and uh, how to walk into a party sober. All these skills that they've been missing out on for all of their adult lives. For anyone living with an alcoholic, Debbie recommends two immediate resources, Al-Anon and the book, Codependent No More. I'm Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University and the executive producer and host of Lifespan. Adam Rich is our producer, audio engineer, and audio editor. Join us next month when we talk about life after the death of a longtime partner.